and today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Well, we're in our second sermon in a series thinking about the year of inauguration. Now, that's a long word, but it's a word we have some familiarity with. We've just had an American election. And as America looms large in global politics, we understand something about the Democrats and the Republicans and the whole process of their election. And then we have the inauguration of a new president. Someone goes from being a candidate to a nominee to now they hold this office of the president. And that's a great word for thinking about Jesus. Because we saw last week that Jesus lived as a boy, as a brother, as a sister, as a son, as a carpenter. And yet we're conscious that Jesus is Lord. He's got disciples. He's the Messiah. He's a rabbi. He's a prophet, priest, king. How does that transition kind of happen? Well, today we're going to think particularly about how Jesus comes to have disciples. And you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, I got this one. I'm familiar with this topic. Because in each of the four Gospels, there's an account of Jesus calling his disciples. We just read the one from Luke. The one from Matthew, Mark and John are pretty similar. Let's quickly just read one of those. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon or Peter and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen come follow me jesus said and i will send you out to fish for people and at once they left their nets and they followed him and when jesus had gone a little farther he saw james the son of zebedee and his brother john in a boat and they were preparing their nets without delay he called them and they left their father zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him We're very familiar with those couple of verses or the equivalent verses in Matthew and John. And we have this picture that here's Jesus walking along the lake, 
sees a couple of fishermen in one boat and a couple of fishermen in another boat and says, hey, come follow me. And they say, wow, of course, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. We're going to give up fishing, leave our boats. We're following you full time, 100%. We're behind you. We're never, ever going back to fishing. Is that what actually happens? Well, we need to just uh, get our heads a moment around how a, a rabbi and his disciples kind of works. Because we aren't Jews. We aren't 21st century Jews, let alone 1st century Jews. And when Jesus was calling disciples, when Jesus was teaching and his disciples followed him, there was a set of expectations that the original audience would have known. So let me talk a little bit about some New Testament background. We know from um, a book that comes from the second century about how Jewish education of boys worked. And this is a tradition. It's an oral tradition that's been written down. So most of this is probably true from 100 years earlier in the time of Jesus. And here's what would happen. When a boy was about five, they would start going to the synagogue. So Jesus would go to the synagogue in Nazareth. Peter would go to the synagogue in Capernaum, we assume. And you would learn scripture. You would learn it off by heart. You would probably start with the Shema in Deuteronomy 5. The Lord our God is one. Uh, and then you would learn whole chunks of scripture. And the rabbi who taught you, he wasn't like permanently ordained and attached to uh, your local synagogue. He would have been paid by the parents a little bit like an itinerant school teacher, and he would have come in and taught. And from five to about the age of 10, you learned scripture and perhaps you learned to read and write as well. Uh, and then from the age 10 onwards, you start to learn something called the Mishnah. Now, you're not just learning the scripture, but now you're learning interpretations of the scripture. This is what Moses says, and this is what Rabbi Hillel thinks Moses means when he says that and how it applies. And we can contrast with that with what Rabbi Shammai thinks. And he interprets Moses this way, and he thinks it applies like this. And that's what you would learn from the age of 10. And you would do that up until you were about 12 or 13, and then there was a rite of passage. In modern times, for Jews, we would call that your bar mitzvah. Uh, as Anglicans, actually, we might have called that kind of your first communion. But for Jesus, it's about going down to Jerusalem to the temple. Some boys continued an education beyond that, but most stopped. From the age 13 to about 15, you would learn more of the commandments and all those extra rules about what you should and shouldn't do. From the age 15 onwards, you would start to study the Talmud. That's another layer of interpretations beyond the Mishnah. From age 20 onwards, if you were one of the brightest students, then your rabbi would have a conversation with your parents and say, you know, you've been sending your son to me. Uh, they're working part-time for you and they're studying part-time with me. I think they've got the chops. What about if they actually prepare to be a full-time rabbi uh, and I'm going to do some tours and drop in on some synagogues and do some teaching? What about if your son travels with me as one of my disciples? Actually, 
the parents and the rabbi would have a negotiated conversation, you know. Uh, I think your son might be good enough. We can afford, we'd love for our son to become a rabbi. Uh, and then from the age 20 to 30, um, a, a young person is kind of traveling with the rabbi. Uh, and then at age 30, you become old enough to become a rabbi. But you know what? Most rabbis aren't allowed to make up their own teachings. All they're allowed to do is to say, the law says this, Rabbi Hillel thinks it means this, Rabbi Shammai thinks it means that. Let's have a discussion about the differences between their two opinions. And that's all they can do. Very, very few rabbis get another level of authority still, um, a shmikha, and they are authorized to offer a new interpretation of the law. That's the background to how Jewish education works. Now, have that in mind, and let's just kind of bounce off Jesus. So Jesus is, remember, just an ordinary boy. He's got brothers and sisters. He goes to his local synagogue, and from the age of 5 to 10, he learns Scripture. And from the age of 10 onwards, he starts to learn the interpretations of Scripture. And then we read in Luke 2 that he goes with his parents for his first Passover. And we read this, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Just reflect on that verse for a minute. Not only are the locals kind of going, actually, he's a bright kid, he's a good kid, he he's, honors his parents, he obeys the Lord. He's also growing in favor with God. How is that possible? Something's going on here so that Luke can write that the incarnate Jesus in the flesh actually can grow in his relationship with God and God can view him with greater measures of favor. What the heck does that mean? Well, it's there. It's got to mean something. There's this sense that Jesus is progressing as a person. Well, does Jesus continue on? Is he such a bright student that the rabbi kind of goes, you know what, you ought to stay. And we just don't know. It's possible that Jesus went back for extra classes when he was kind of 13, 14, 15. But there's no indication that from the age of about 20 onwards, Jesus does anything other than carpentry. And that's why the locals from his village say, we know this guy. This is Mary's son. This is the brother. This is, you know, he's got James and Jude and, and, and two sisters and, and he's just a carpenter. They're not saying, oh, he was obviously such a bright candidate to be a rabbi and he was a disciple and we could just see he was going to be an amazing. There's none of that in scripture, no hints of that. And so Jesus doesn't have that season of training. And so when Jesus is 30 or 31, perhaps, and suddenly comes out as a rabbi and starts teaching and calling disciples, his local townsfolk are going, what the heck is going on here? You haven't gone through the right training. You haven't been prepared by a rabbi. You can't just suddenly become a rabbi. That's not who you are. You're a carpenter. This doesn't make sense. And they reject his teachings. Can you see what's kind of happening here? 
Now let's think about this from the perspective of the disciples. Peter and James and John and Andrew, also good Jewish boys, also would have been to the local synagogue. And they would have learned the scripture and the Mishnah. And we don't know what they were learning from age 13 to 15. But it, it appears that nobody has tapped them on the shoulder. They aren't the disciples of any rabbi. Actually, let's just ask a question for a moment. How old do you think the disciples might be when Jesus asks them to follow him? Well, the New Testament doesn't actually tell us. We've got to glean a few facts. We do read that Peter has a mother-in-law. And Peter's actually in charge of his own fishing boats, as opposed to James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, and they're fishing under their dad's authority, or as Simon's partners. So we can make some assumptions. Peter is probably 18 or older, and the others who appear not to be married may well be in their mid-teens, about the kind of age where somebody might call them to be a disciple. But it wasn't the rabbi from the synagogue in which they grew up in. These guys have been overlooked and they're just garden variety fishermen. They were missed out. Others were selected to be possible rabbis and that was a highly esteemed vocation. There's lots of good rabbis who come out of the region of Galilee. There's lots of good synagogues. The one up the road at Sepphoris, if you've been watching on Wednesday nights, I showed you some pictures from there. Um, that has very esteemed rabbis and it's an important place of Jewish learning. So now that we've got that in our minds, let's go back to today's reading. And Jesus comes up to some fishermen. And Jesus is not an established rabbi. He hasn't been doing the synagogue route with another rabbi and they haven't been going down to the synagogue and saying, oh, guess what? The visiting rabbi from Nazareth is here today with his disciples and there's this young smart guy with potential called Jesus and, oh, look, he's back and he's his own rabbi. Now, none of that's happening. Jesus is just a nobody who rocks up and says, hey, come follow me. And we would expect Peter and Andrew and James and John to say, who the heck are you? You're, you're not a rabbi. We haven't seen you visiting our synagogue. We haven't seen you going through a season of discipleship. And I've got a cousin who kind of lives up near there somewhere, and I, I hear you're just a carpenter. Why the heck would I give up my vocation to follow you? That's what we expect Peter to say. What's more, Peter would probably be thinking to himself, well, hang on. My rabbi didn't think I had the chops. Who the heck are you? And why would you call me? That season of life has come and gone and, and I wasn't up to scratch. Uh, it doesn't... See, this is a, a counterintuitive story. Culturally, it's wrong. Now let's jump into the narrative. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee... It's not really a sea, of course. It's actually a lake. Um, about five times the size of uh, Sydney Harbour, if you like, or seven times the size of Lake Illawarra. 
the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Hang on, didn't say that in the other reading, did it? I'll come back to that. Um, he sat there at the water's edge. There were two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And Jesus gets into the one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asks to be put out a little from the shore. And then he sits down, which is what rabbis do, teachers do in those days. They sit when they teach and they taught the people and he taught the people from the boat. Notice differences between this and the reading from Mark. There's a crowd. Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel, John's gospel has Jesus almost immediately going and calling disciples. Right? So in Matthew's gospel, he comes out of, he's baptized, tempted in the desert, comes and calls disciples. They leave everything and follow him. John's gospel, pretty similar. Um, Mark's gospel doesn't have the account of uh, Jesus and the temptation and Jesus and the baptism, but it's about the first thing he does in his ministry is he starts calling disciples. But in Luke's account, there's a crowd who's watching and the crowd is so big that Jesus actually has to go out into a boat because the foreshore is just crowded. And do you think people are in the habit of kind of, let's just go down there's this kind of cool speaker in town. Like maybe this happens in the synagogue, but Jesus is becoming a big thing. And there's other details that are different in this story. Peter and the others have been fishing all night. There's nothing of that sense in the other story. Um, in this story, Peter fishes all night and James and John, they come back, their boats are on the shore. Jesus jumps in the boat does some teaching while they're fiddling around with their nets, fixing them up after the, after the night. And then at the end, Jesus says, go out and fish again, right? That's Luke's story. Matthew, Mark, John, they don't read like that. They just read as if they've come back from fishing and Jesus says, follow me, and they leave and they follow. And the other gospels have nothing about a great catch of fish. So what do we do here? Well, we'll come back to that later. But I want you to notice that in Luke's account, there is a crowd. And the reason there's a crowd is because in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been on public ministry. He's actually got disciples and he's going around and teaching and healing. And he heals so many people that he needs to move to another town and another town. He's a popular guy. When he had finished speaking... Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, Master, he says. We'll come to that in a minute. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Something's going on here. Peter, James, and John are still fishing. This is according to the NIV study Bible, and, and there's good scholars who sit behind that. This is the beginning of the year of popularity. That's why there are so many people watching. They've been following Jesus for about 12 months. 
uh, with um, Leon Morris, um, I, I take the view that what's going on in Luke's gospel is different and later than what we read in Mark's gospel. And Mark's gospel reads as if Peter, Andrew, James and John leave their nets and they never ever go fishing again. And yet now we read they've been out fishing all night. And actually that fits with what disciples do. Because disciples need to earn an income. They've got to put food on the table. They've got to pay their teacher. And so to be a disciple in the first century, you did work part-time and you studied part-time until you got into your 20s and then you went on those road trips and only in your 30s could you leave your part-time occupation and become a full-time teacher. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? But that's an aside. Um, So Peter, James and John and Andrew are still fishing. Whatever is being said in Mark or John or Matthew, it doesn't mean they've permanently left their fishing nets and they never ever go fishing again. In fact, what happens um, when Jesus uh, dies? Where does Peter go and James and John? They go back fishing again. They still own their fishing boats three years later. It seems like they never, ever leave permanent fishing. Um, They're wealthy enough to have staff to continue to fish for them, even while they're out being disciples for two or three years. Anyway, Jesus calls the disciples again in this passage. I, I take it that there's a multiple kind of a calling, that there's an initial calling and then there's a reaffirmation of the calling and um, we get a kind of a response. And in the meantime, they have been part-time fishermen, part-time disciples. Let's go back to the story. When he had finished speaking, he said to them, put out into the nets. And Simon said, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything let's just think for a moment about peter peter's always the first to speak isn't he he's a pretty confident guy he's a pretty proud guy and what we've also kind of gleaned from the narrative is that peter runs his own fishing boat james and john it's not their boat it's their father's boat But Peter is a pretty young guy because all of the disciples um, are still around 30 odd years after Jesus has died, right? Peter reflects on being 60 later um, in the New Testament. So they're all, nobody's probably older than Jesus. They're all in their teens or, and maybe Peter's in his twenties and already he owns a fishing boat and a house. In fact, if you watch on Wednesday night, I can show you Peter's house. Um, uh, He's a good fisherman. He knows how to fish. Jesus might be good at carpentry, but Peter is a young, successful entrepreneur who's able to fish. He's got staff. He's able to become a disciple for three years and come back to his fishing boat and it's been able to generate enough income to look after him and his family. That's how good he is at his thing. And then this carpenter guy says, hey, Why don't you go fishing in the daytime? And Peter's thinking to himself, that's nuts. I'm the fisherman here. I know when and how to fish. There's something of a rebuke, the commentary suggests, when Simon says, 
hey, we've fished all night and we haven't caught anything. You don't fish during the day. But I will. Why the concession? Well, because Jesus has performed some miracles. Peter has seen his mother-in-law healed. He has seen the whole town of Capernaum come after that story got out and all of their people got healed. And then the next day they had to leave and go elsewhere. And then other people got healed in other places. He's seen that happening. That's why there are crowds of people who are now watching. He knows there's something amazing about Jesus. And so he calls him master. There's a word of respect. There's a term of honor there for Jesus. So he kind of says, okay, there's something special, something unique about you. I will. I'll go and do it. Then what happens? When Simon saw this, the fish that is, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Where does that come from? What's that got to do with fish? Odd, isn't it? For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Notice not only that Peter says, I'm a sinful man, but now he calls Jesus Lord. There's a progression there. We've moved from master to Lord, to the person who's in charge of everything, and I'm following you. It's a claim that Caesar made of himself. And now Peter is using the term you use for Caesar of Jesus. That's how powerful and impressive Jesus is. And Jesus says to him, after Simon has just said, hey, I'm sinful, Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And they pulled up their boats and they left everything and they followed him. Or did they? Because two, three years, they can come back to their boats again. Isn't this interesting stuff? It's a more complex story than what you think. So what's going on now? Peter is now calling Jesus Lord. There's an acknowledgement about Jesus' divinity. You know, this is astounding. Peter has been on the road in Luke's gospel. He's seen all of these miracles, and yet he's only calling Jesus master. And then there's a miracle that happens, and perhaps it's not even a miracle. It might be just an amazing coincidence, but it, it reads as if it's more than that. And Peter's nets are full of fish. After that, he starts calling Jesus Lord. Why not after a casting out of a demon? Why not after healing a blind person? That sounds like a more impressive miracle, doesn't it? What's going on here? You know what's going on? We're in Peter's expertise. There's something about Peter that says, there's a whole bunch of stuff I mightn't be good at, but you know what? I know my thing. I'm a fisherman and I'm good at it. Peter trusts himself in his own area of expertise, such that he even kind of pushes back a little bit on Jesus and says, hey, we've already fished at night when you're supposed to fish. I know how to fish. 
I, look, I'm only a young guy and I already own my own fishing boat and a, and a crew. And it's when Peter fishes all night and comes back with an empty nest in the very thing he thinks he's the best at. And then Jesus turns it around in circumstances where it doesn't make sense to catch any fish. It's only after that that Peter says, Jesus is Lord. Doesn't that tell you something about human nature? We can see God do amazing things in all sorts of other areas. But perhaps it's only when we go fishing all night and come home with empty nests in what we think is our strength. When we come up short and then Jesus delivers, are we at a space where we're capable of saying, I'm not Lord. Somebody else is Lord of my life. And it happens to somebody who actually thinks they've been a disciple already for 12 months, who really thinks they'd left everything and were following Jesus. And yet there's a new revelation. And what's part of this revelation? The more Peter appreciates who Jesus is, the more he becomes conscious of his own sinfulness, of his own fallen human nature, of his trust in himself. And so he says, I don't deserve to be one of your disciples. I, I'm sinful. I shouldn't be in your presence. And then Jesus says, come follow me. And what does Peter do? He leaves his boat and his best ever catch. Who's ever heard of a fisherman who does that? That's remarkable. Well, what does all this mean? Let me make a few reflections. Firstly, what does it mean about Jesus? People are initially skeptical, not just the people of Nazareth. Everyone is, because he didn't go through the proper rabbinical training. He wasn't somebody's disciple. He wasn't turning up for 10 years as somebody's devotee. Um, some, some rabbi has got uh, 10 or 12 disciples, and one of them just happens to be Jesus, and, and he's visiting all the synagogues in the region. He's not doing that. He's just the carpenter, and so people are initially skeptical, and they ought to be. Jesus actually has to establish himself. And that's part of what's going on in the Gospels. Go back and read them, any of them. But there's this sense in which Jesus' um, miracles and his teaching and his overcoming of the demons are all about his authority to be a rabbi because he hasn't had the proper teaching. He hasn't had the ordination you need to become a rabbi. And Jesus acts with incredible authority. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, given what I've explained to you today. You've heard it said by Moses, but I say unto you, Jesus is going beyond what even the best rabbis are allowed to do. He's now reinterpreting Moses and saying, Moses got it wrong. Hillai and Shammai can't even do that. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm a more powerful rabbi than that. That is incredible, that claim. 
any wonder they thought that he was blasphemous. Fourth, Jesus talks the talk of the locals. We're in the north. And what does he say to fishermen? He says, hey, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's using metaphors, everyday metaphors that make sense to rural Galileans. He's going to talk about vineyards. He's going to talk about um, trees and olives. Um, he's going to talk about paying taxes and, and the taxes come out of the mouth of a fish. Uh, all these things that are part of the everyday life of rural Galileans, that's how Jesus talks. His ministry is embedded in the culture that he is trying to reach. Fifth, um, can we just jump forward? My clicker didn't work then. Uh, Jesus calls ordinary people who have been overlooked by the system. Isn't that something? Peter, his rabbi apparently didn't tap him on the shoulder, nor James and John. Uh, and, and he even calls Matthew or Levi the tax collector. Ordinary people who will go on to do extraordinary things. And lastly, note that making disciples takes time even for Jesus. If there's a gap between the two stories, if they're actually separate stories, and we're now at the beginning of the year of popularity because there's so many people Jesus has to go out in a boat, he's been in public ministry for close to a year, and his disciples still only think he's a master, and they're not yet calling him Lord. And so if it takes Jesus a year to get his disciples to that point, well, discipleship is a journey and it takes time. What does it tell us about Peter and the Twelve? We've heard some things about what this stuff tells us about Jesus. Firstly, it seems that the disciples make a slow start. That they're not immediately going, my goodness, see the halo. He's the son of God. Um, this is the great Messiah. You know, the, the Gospels just don't read that way. They're slow to realize exactly who Jesus is. In fact, perhaps Peter's not even sure Jesus is Lord, hence why he's calling him Master. And in the writing of Luke, it's only after the miracle that he's called Lord. Third, their initial commitment proves to be partial. Oh, we'll work a bit on the side still. And we'll stick to what we know best. We know how to fish and we'll trust ourselves in our areas of expertise. And, and when we have to, Jesus, when we're in need or when we're stuck or when we've got some sick people, we might come to you as well. But you know what? When it comes to fishing, we've got that one covered. We can do it without you. We won't bother you. It's fine. Just leave it up to us. Doesn't that sound like human nature? Can you hear echoes of yourself in that? My goodness, I can. I, I got this one, Jesus, I'm good at this or I'm good at that. And, you know, uh, I, I've got my equivalent of thinking I know how to fish. Peter thinks he knows better. You and I aren't fishermen. Our slight rebuke 
our assumption that we've got it covered is not in the area of fishing. I don't know. Is it in the area of your intelligence? I can think my way through this one. I can problem solve this one. Uh, I, I can fix this relationship. Um, I've got relational smarts. I'm pretty savvy. Um, I'm good with finances. I've got people and, and connections. And I'm, I'm good at kind of um, politics. Uh, and we, it's not that we say, Jesus, we don't need your help. But we know better. It's kind of like we just assume that somehow we've got this one covered. It sounds like Joshua, doesn't it? Oh, I can tell who's my enemies and who's not my enemies and who's traveled from far and who hasn't. And, and I can tell whether or not we can fight this city and we're going to win this battle. And, and, and it also sounds like Adam and Eve. We'd actually kind of like to know good from evil so we can decide what's right for ourselves. And that's what Peter does. He just assumes that he knows better. And where does it get him? He fishes all night and he comes up with nothing. And sometimes that happens to us, doesn't it, in our areas of perceived strength. We fish all night and we come up with nothing. We think our way through a problem and we try and solve it. And rather than fixing it, actually, actually, because it's worse. We try and mend a relationship and instead of things being better, they're actually more broken than when we started. We've got some financial problems and we come up with a bit of a solution and we invest here and we save here and, and, and then we're worse off at the end than what we think. I don't know what it is for you, but do you feel like Peter where sometimes you fish all night and, and you're exhausted and it's in the very thing you think you're good at and you're pulling your nets and you've got nothing? Why does that happen? And you might be thinking, of course I'm following Jesus. I've been following Jesus for years. Peter thought that too. But something happens in this moment where Peter thinks he's in his strong suit and it turns out he can't trust and rely on himself and Jesus delivers that there's a transition. And he calls Jesus Lord. And there's a deeper, more profound level of commitment to Jesus. Consciousness of his own sinfulness. And leaving things behind and following Jesus. What does this tell us about being a disciple? Firstly, discipleship's a process. If you're discipling others, well... Jesus' disciples take time and they get things wrong and they mess it up and so will the people we're discipling. Be patient. Manage your expectations. Secondly, becoming a disciple is also a process. If we met Peter, Andrew, James and John the first time they left their boats and said we're following Jesus and said are you a full-on disciple of Jesus? They would have said yep. And now we discover later that maybe they weren't as full on as what they thought. And maybe that's happening in your life too. You think you're fully sold out to Jesus, but you find yourself in an area that you perceive to be your strength. You've kind of trusted your own intuition. You've been fishing all night. You've pulled in the nets and they're empty. And you're conscious 
that you're not as much a disciple who's trusting in the Lordship of Jesus as what you thought. If that's you, Jesus is in that moment. It's happening for a reason. There are times where we are sceptical and we trust ourselves. And it's probably not to do with fishing, it's to do with something else. I don't know what it is for you. You just meditate upon that. What happens for Peter is when it's demonstrated that he can't trust himself and he comes to the end of himself, then he obeys Jesus and it brings results. And that's part of the solution for us. You don't have to be an amazing person or brilliant at this or a standout and people were tapping you on the shoulder saying, have you considered ministry? You could just be an ordinary garden variety person and Jesus still has something for you to do as his disciple. An ordinary person who may have been overlooked by others, but Jesus is saying, hey, come follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men or a singer for a congregation or a carer for the hurting or a lawnmower for people's yards. Whatever giftings and abilities you have, Jesus can use those to extend his kingdom. And lastly, disciples emulate the life of their rabbi. So Peter has this aha moment and he realizes not only can't he solve his own problems in his strong suit, he actually has a a flash of insight about himself. I'm sinful. And Jesus doesn't say, it's okay, I'm going to die on the cross for you. He says, follow me. Do life with me. Leave the thing that you think you're an expert in and you're trusting in yourself and do life with me and invite me into every aspect of your life. And that's where we will deal with your sinfulness and your brokenness. I'm not denying the reality of the cross. But Jesus doesn't reference it. And so I want to say to you, where's the area in your life where you've been trusting in your strength, in your strong suit, where you've been out fishing all night, multiple nights, and you're at the end of yourself and you can't solve your problems. And I want to say to you, invite Jesus into that space and walk with him through that challenge, through that empty fishing net, through that broken relationship, through that financial difficulty, through that fantasy or that dream that overtakes you and drives you, through that disappointment, through that hurt, whatever it is. Do life with Jesus in the everyday complexities and messiness Follow in his footsteps and make him your Lord and that will be the path out. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, this is just an amazing story 
that we've perhaps had some fresh insights into today. We thank you for the reflections of Luke, inspired by the Spirit, some of which just align with our inclinations of our broken and fallen hearts. And we just want to come and confess that we too are sinners, that we are prone to trusting in ourselves, that we are prone to thinking that we are already your disciples and we've handed everything over to you when maybe we haven't. And maybe there's an area of our life where we're conscious that you aren't the Lord at the moment and it's broken and it's getting more messy and we just want to bring that before you, Jesus. And we want to leave it with you. We want to invite you into that space. And we want to trust you. And we want to see the fruitfulness that comes on the other side of obeying you. So that you might be glorified and honoured as Lord, not just in our lives, but everywhere. Amen.